Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 250. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss Aladdin and the King of Thieves, the epic conclusion to the Aladdin trilogy. This should surprise almost no one. I had not seen this film prior to reviewing it for Monorail Radio. As much as I love the return of Jafar, and as much as I was still in the target demographic age range for this type of film, I remember thinking by the time this one came out, it's just another movie, it's just another sequel, it's just not going to be the same. Because even as a kid, like, you could kind of figure out when something was going to be watered down and when they were just making a movie to make money. To me at the time, that's what this felt like. So I'll be very interested to see how I feel by the end of this discussion. Well, I think part of that might come from, too, that they were cranking them out as far as Aladdin goes. This came yeah. out in 1996. So you had three Aladdin films in three years. Yeah. Um, for as big as I was on Return of Jafar, I honestly couldn't remember if I had seen this or not, or if I was just remembering the promotion, because that I remember very vividly because there was just so much of it. Um, I remember the commercials, and I think it was even you know, previewed before other films, the we're finally getting married, we're finally getting married. And they really leaned into that. And I was thinking about it now. I think it was such a big deal because up until this point, we had never quite built a Disney relationship in this way. Like, yes, we saw Ariel and Eric get married at the end of Little Mermaid. You could argue that Belle and Prince Adam get married at the end of Beauty and the Beast. But it's just kind of like a button on the film. As far as Aladdin and Jasmine go, they have now built this relationship over the course of three films. So this was like a huge deal and Disney made a big deal of it. And I thought that that's what I was remembering. But then as soon as I saw Kasim come on screen, I was like, oh, no, I know who this is. I've definitely seen this. But I really didn't remember too much of it. I'm thinking that's probably the other reason why I tuned this one out, because you're right. The advertising was, they're finally getting married. They're finally getting married. And I think that I just assumed that this was a movie about Aladdin marrying Jasmine, which it's a part of the movie, but it's not really the entire plot. But when you're a 10-year-old boy, you don't care about Aladdin and Jasmine's wedding. It's just not something that you're going to be tuning into. So, did I miss the boat? Should I regret it? And where does this rank, not only amongst Aladdin, but also the other straight-to-VHS sequels that, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. 
As Aladdin and Jasmine prepare for their wedding, the King of Thieves arrives with his men to rob them of their treasure and their wedding gifts. Aladdin, meanwhile, takes a dagger that had been left to him from his late father, who we all assumed is dead. During the ceremony, the 40 thieves, led by Saluk, cause a distraction while the King of Thieves tries to steal a magical staff. The 40 thieves are fought off. And an oracle arrives from the staff and tells Aladdin, Jasmine, the genie, and Iago that there is an ultimate treasure that can be sought. She tells them that they each have one question that she can answer and exposes that Aladdin's father is in fact alive. Jasmine convinces Aladdin that their wedding can wait as Aladdin should go find his father, so Aladdin asks the oracle where his father is. So she tells him his father is trapped within the path of the 40 thieves, so Iago, Aladdin, Abu, and the carpet set off to find him. He finds them at their hideout, Mount Sesame, and learns that his father, Kasim, is actually the King of Thieves. Saluk wishes to kill them for infiltrating the hideout, but Kasim convinces them to spare the lives of Aladdin and the rest in order for Aladdin to face the challenge, where he must defeat one of the 40 thieves and replace him. He defeats Saluk, who is now assumed to be dead, and takes his place as one of the 40 thieves. However, we soon, that he, we soon see that he is alive. Kasim tells Aladdin that he left the family to pursue the hands of Midas, an artifact that turns everything it touches into gold to pull them out of poverty. Aladdin convinces him to return to Agrava to live an, orma, uh, an honest and normal life, which Kasim agrees to only in order to get closer to the Oracle. Saluk, meanwhile, tells the palace guards that he can lead them to the King of Thieves. Upon his return to the palace, Kasim decides to continue his quest for treasure and the Oracle along with Iago by his side. And they attempt to steal the Oracle, and when that happens, the truth of his identity is exposed, and Kasim and Iago are captured and sentenced to life in the dungeon. Aladdin, dressed as his father, breaks them free and turns himself in. When the Sultan decides to punish him, the genie and Jasmine convince him not to do so, as all he wanted to do was give his father the second chance that he was once given. Saluk, meanwhile, convinces the other thieves to join him as their new leader, so they capture Kasim and Iago and take the staff, where they learn the location of the Hand of Midas. Aladdin, Jasmine, Abu, and the carpet set off to rescue Kasim when they see that the vanishing isle where the hands, uh, Hand of Midas is being kept is actually on the back of a large turtle. Aladdin and Kasim find the Hand of Midas, and they see its powers. Saluk threatens to kill Aladdin if he doesn't get the hand, so when he does touch the hand, this is Saluk, he turns to gold and dies and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. As the turtle dives back down, the isle fills with water. They escape, and Kasim tells Aladdin, Aladdin that he was the true treasure the whole time and tosses the hand of Midas into the sea. They all go back to Agrabah, where Aladdin and Jasmine are married. Iago and Kasim head off together to find their next adventure. Okay, so um, before we get into the plot, I do want to discuss something that had... It, it kind of came up last week when we were watching the film, but it wasn't discussed on the show. But I think it's interesting to discuss it now. The warning label. That, that patented Disney Plus warning label is back for Aladdin and the King of Thieves. It's on all of the Aladdin yes. films, I believe. Well, we, yes, and I remember it being on the first. I was sort of surprised to see it on the second, but the talk was always that the reason why Aladdin had a warning label on it was because the film was whitewashed. That's what the reasoning was by Disney when they had put it on the first time. And it was very interesting to me when it came up again because looking into the credits 
you see that John Reese davies is in the film. We all know him as Salah from Indiana Jones. And I thought, well, it's kind of strange that you would still slap a warning label on considering the fact that you did at least uh, hire an actor of an Arab descent. This is where it gets even more interesting, though. John Reese davies is not Arab. He's from Wales. His father is of Spanish descent. He's from Spain. There are no warning labels before Indiana Jones. Any of them. And not only that, but John Reese davies who, by the way, I have no problem with John Reese davies I love him. He's great in those films. He's great as Salah. I was happy to see him brought back. But Disney brought back the original cast because they were the original living cast of Indiana Jones. But there's no warning labels behind any of that. There's not a warning label behind the new film, or at least I don't suspect that there will be. And even as it's produced by Disney, they went and hired an actor that was not of Arab descent to play a Middle Eastern character. So I understand, and they're gonna let's call, they're gonna hide behind original cast. But if you're going to hide behind original cast, why are we apologizing for the original cast of Aladdin all of these years later? And I, I kind of put those pieces together. I thought it was very interesting. And then even you had kind of dived into it a little bit. And you had found something that had kind of, you know, piqued your attention a little bit. Before I get into that, I do want to touch on a few things that you said. So when we reviewed Aladdin for the podcast they didn't have the full screen warnings yet. We did it before those were implemented. It had the warning in the top left, just a few words about, you know, depictions being inappropriate. Right. But it wasn't that full slate where it's counting down 10 seconds before you can move past it to make sure that you read it. So now that's in there. In all fairness, we did see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in theaters so we don't know that that's not going to get that same warning when it comes to Disney+. Plus. But if that one has it, why don't the others have it? No, and that's, that's a perfectly fair argument because it is the exact same case of you bothered to bring back the original cast and one has a warning label and one potentially does not. But I think with Aladdin, it might go one step further than the casting being whitewashed. It might also be because of the way that some of these characters are drawn. Which leads to what I found. We don't have that exact explanation from Disney. Because what I found very interesting was I went to Disney.com slash Stories Matter, which I had visited before when we reviewed Peter Pan. And Peter Pan is one of the featured films on the main page. It's one of four featured films, which are Peter Pan Dumbo, Swiss Family Robinson, and Aristocats. And those have detailed descriptions of what was wrong about the films, why it's wrong, how it is portraying cultures in the wrong way. And it's it's very detailed. And Disney even does say, we're not going to pull these films down, but we are going to acknowledge it and we are going to be constructive and, and help people learn from it. So I thought, because when I had checked it out, we were reviewing Peter Pan, I went to that main page, I found exactly what I was looking for. Right. Because it was the Peter Pan review. Yeah, no reason to look any further than that. Well, I did. I mean, I looked around the site. I did, you know, want to see what else they had there. But 
my mistake was thinking that they were doing this for each individual film. And I didn't put the two and two together because I found the film that I was looking for that week. I went looking for Aladdin to see what the explanation was. And I went, oh, they just did this as a blanket statement. And they're not going in depth about every single film. And my question is why? If you're going to bother to do this, then do it. Because I believe that Disney wanted to acknowledge this is the thing. This is just my theory. Because what we were told was that the warning is there because they didn't hire Arab actors and actresses. Right? Um, Will Smith's not one either, playing the genie in the live action, but we're going to look past that because they got everybody else right. Okay? Um, what's, what's interesting is they acknowledged it as being a whitewashed film, but I don't think they want that in writing because Aladdin means too much to them in regards to merchandising, in, regard, in regards to characters in the park. Now, you can say the same thing about Dumbo and, and Peter Pan. However, there are things egregious in Dumbo and Peter Pan. In reality, there's nothing that I think a lot of people, and not everybody, but there's nothing in Aladdin that's as egregious as Jim Crow in Dumbo or what makes the red man red in Peter Pan. So I think that this is Disney covering their bases, throwing a blanket statement out there, the same thing they've done with the Muppets, and I've been kind of outspoken about, I don't think that the Muppets are harmful, and I've often called for, in fact, we have a video up on our TikTok where I say that perhaps we should rework some of the wording because I do think that you're kind of putting a negative connotation on certain things that I don't believe are meant to be negative. Um, or or you're making it seem so much worse. And Yes, you're and- making something seem bad. Yes, and obviously racism is very bad, but the argument that we're making is that the way that this is being presented is going to discourage people from watching it instead of watching it with your family, watching it with your child, and having them learn from it. The interesting thing, too, though, now that I'm thinking about it, um, the films that I mentioned, Dumbo, Peter Pan, Swiss Family Robinson, and Aristocats, are all Walt era films. I'm wondering Ah. if they didn't, yep. I'm wondering Mm. if they didn't want to put Aladdin up there because it's too recent history and they don't want to admit that even in the 90s, they didn't, you know, factor this in. Hmm. And and because a lot of the people that are calling shots at Disney now... It's all the older films. A lot of people calling shots at Disney now are those that had a hand in making the renaissance that saved the company. That's an interesting theory. Yeah. That's a very interesting theory. Um, all right. Well, let's let's actually get into the plot here. Um, I want to start with the first shot because yeah. of all the straight-to-video sequels that we've seen so far, um, we were pretty tough on Little Mermaid 2 and uh, Belle's Magical Mess for some janky animation. Um, Return of Jafar had spectacular animation throughout. I think that also has to do with it being uh, produced as a television show as well. Um, And here the animation was great throughout as well. 
except for this one shot of Kasim's foot in the sand. This sand is such weak animation. And maybe it looked great in theaters years ago, but in high def, it looks like a like a Formica countertop. It does. <laughs> like really bad. The footprint is fine, but the grains of sand, I was kind of like, you didn't have to go that tight with the shot. There are certain things that we know having watched a lot of these films now on Disney Plus and even a lot of the classics, but you and I have so many of them on DVD and now Blu-ray. There are certain things that don't need to be remastered because it stands out. Some things just look better on a VHS cassette tape. So this is where I realized that I had seen this before because you take one look at Kasim, you don't even see his whole face. You just get the eyes and the eyebrows and it's very obvious that this is Aladdin's dad. Oh yeah. Can we talk about though, I know that everybody loves to ride on Little Mermaid and at the end of the ride, it's, oh, Zaddy Triton. We are sleeping on Kasim, people. This might be the most attractive daddy Disney has ever drawn. This is not where I thought this conversation <laughs> was going. It needed to be said. I'm I'm fearful of what our <laughs> inbox is going to look like because you, I feel like you're going to have a lot of people coming out of the woodwork. Why is it that we always find these kind of things? It's, it's like... The, the sexualization of the animals in Robin, Robin Hood. Hood. That people still talk about it, that it's controversial. Well, at least I'm going for a human this time. I but I mean, come that. on, give the man a little bit of credit. He's got great bone structure. He's got the silver fox thing happening on the side. I I'm liking Kasim. Okay. <laughs> um, you can answer the emails this week. Um, also noteworthy, does not open with Arabian Nights. So this is the third yes. film, and it's the only one that doesn't open with Arabian Nights, which is sort of interesting considering Robin Williams is back. So you obviously had the song re-recorded by another voice actor. Um, in Return of Jafar. In Return of Jafar, when, when they opened with it, you would have thought that perhaps they would have done it here. They wasted absolutely zero time, though getting Robin Williams back. I mean, we're going to break down the music individually, but I mean, kicking off with a song, obviously you're going to give it to him. Um, so they clearly wanted to kick this off strong. And even before we get into the party and Agrabah song, um, they do the title intro with Jeannie as Tinkerbell flying over and, you know, waving the wand. Um, it's just hysterical. The Easter eggs in this movie are on point. They hit on like every single IP they had and transformed the genie into another character. I love that about this film. Yeah. Um, another character that's back is Razul, and he is still just as bloodthirsty as ever. I love how he pulls no punches, letting Genie know how unhappy that he is that Aladdin is marrying Jasmine. It's hysterical. Yeah. So, very familiar off the rip. Let's talk about Kasim for a moment, now that you've had a second to calm down. Um, because there's only two new characters in this film. We get introduced to them immediately. The first is Kasim, played by John Rhys-Davies. Um, like you said, you see it in the eyes right away. You know it's Aladdin's father. Forget the fact that that little emblem that's on the dagger is also on his outfit. And we'll talk about that in a little while. Um 
you could just tell in the eyes. Because that's all you see. He's got a mask covering his face because he's been walking through the desert. Obviously, the sandstorms. You got to protect yourself. You would honestly, going in on a blind, had it not been for the... You can tell he's got a scowl on his face just in the eyes. Had it not been for that, you would have thought, oh, this is Aladdin. That's how I knew right away, having never seen this before, that that was his father. But I thought that John Rhys Davis was really good. I think that throughout the movie, you never trust him. You never really know exactly what he's thinking. You know that he's obviously very selfish, but he has that sort of mysterious shadow that he's always lurking behind. And I think John Rhys Davis did a really great job. I think he knocked it out of the park. And I, I think that this is one of the most intriguing characters that we've seen in a Disney film here set in this straight to VHS sequel. I would agree. Um, that's very hard to convey through voice acting. I mean, obviously that does work in conjunction with the animation to keep that veil of mystery over him. Um, but you don't get that overt switching sides for your own benefit, like a Jack Sparrow. Yes. This is more conflicted because he wants to do the right thing by his son, but he doesn't have enough time to part ways with his past yet. This is just kind of a lot happening at once. Um, And I will get deeper into that later because there's another instance where I don't think that they let it unfold very well. But, um, you know, we talked about how great Return of Jafar was because it picks up right where Aladdin leaves off. But one of the things that we had said was, yes, Iago says Aladdin is living in the palace now. And that sort of made things confusing for Aladdin's character because, yes, he's living in the palace without a title. We know he's going to marry Jasmine. And he's still out acting like Robin Hood and, and, you know, giving treasure to the poor. And we were kind of like, well, what does Jasmine think he's off doing all day? What's interesting to me is we've confirmed that he's living in the palace, but he kept his bachelor pad because now that's where Jeannie goes looking for him when he's supposed to be at the altar. So I just want to understand, not only did you keep your bachelor pad, but you kept this very valuable, both monetarily and emotionally valuable knife in the bachelor pad when there's no security whatsoever. And never here do we get a mention of Aladdin and Jasmine traveling the world together. Because remember, the film Return of Jafar ends with him saying he is turning down the opportunity to be the royal vizier because they want to travel the world. We don't get any mention of that. Does it hurt the film? No, but it is noteworthy to say that while Return of Jafar had a few janky moments in the timeline, it felt like a very natural progression. This feels like it takes place in the same universe. This feels like, well, yes, naturally the next thing they would do is get married, but you're right, it's confusing that he continues to have this home outside of the palace. You would assume that he and Abu are not leaving the palace anymore because the other thing that we don't see him see or that we don't see him do to to the something else you just mentioned 
he's not doing, as far as we know, the Robin Hood thing anymore. We don't see him right. do that once in this movie. So there is a little bit of a question mark as to now how how far along are we now? Why is this? It There are a few too many questions that are left unanswered. I mean, I'll look the other way that he's not out Robin Hooding because they've been planning a wedding. Okay, fine. But the soul searching is coming a bit late. And we did say that's sort of because... Return of Jafar shifts focus to Iago and Aladdin's not really at the forefront. So I feel like this would have lent itself better to his choice to not accepting the Sultan's offer to become the vizier. Because even though he turned that down, I feel like we're regressing back even further because now he's questioning where he belongs because he doesn't know his past. Like this should have come earlier for Aladdin. I'm willing to forgive all of this for Robin Williams. Yeah. The belly laughs. I'm legit belly laughs. They happen early. They happen often. The bachelor party thing that he does (laughs) at the bachelor pad, hysterical. The callbacks that you mentioned earlier, the Easter eggs that you mentioned earlier, hysterical. The right actor, the right character to pull that off with. From start to finish, with the song that we'll talk about later and everything that they do here, not only is the entire open excellent, not only do I love the callbacks, but what's amazing about it is the animation is great. This seems big budget. This seems like something that you would have seen in a movie theater, not on a straight-to-VHS release. There there are moments here that seem like they spent a hell of a lot more than they did with Return of Jafar, which, I mean, for the most part, is a flawless, borderline flawless movie. It's I think I had said it's as, oh, it's as close to perfect as perfect can get. Well, I think that also has to do with they know they've got Robin Williams back, right? So they're writing for him. I had said last week that one of the biggest differences is that in Aladdin, you know that Eric Goldberg worked so closely with Robin Williams to conceptualize the character and the voice performance and the animation work in equal measure there because they just were able to have such an amazing collaboration and and work so well together on it. And I had said that last week with Return of Jafar, it really felt like the genie's animation was being led by the voice and they weren't, or uh, I'm sorry, other way around, that the voice was being led by the animation. There wasn't as much improvisation and right. now I feel like we're, we've come full circle where it's, you know what you're getting with Robin Williams. He's going to give you a thousand percent with the energy. You have to animate to match that and I feel like that you feel that shift back again in the right direction where they're working in tandem. Yeah. And this film was rewritten when they were able to get Robin Williams back. When they mended the fence, he got himself a hefty pay raise to come back and do this one. They rewrote a lot just to fit his style to your point, which makes a lot of sense. You know, lines like, uh, I thought the earth isn't supposed to shake until the honeymoon. Oh my gosh. That's one of the best lines you've ever heard in a Disney film. Yeah, like jaw on the floor, full belly laughs. Amazing. And I, I would be willing to bet that that was improvised. And and, and that line is in reference to Saluk, um, 
starting the distraction that allows Kasim to go and get the magical staff, uh, Saluk being voiced by Jerry Orbach. We know him as Lumiere. I love Jerry Orbach. Some of you know him from Dirty Dancing. Some of you know him from Law and Order. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Dun dun. Um, does he sound a little too much like Lumiere here, though? Because he doesn't sound like Jerry Orbach to me. <laughs> like, I, I, he sounds like Jerry Orbach doing Lumiere, but less French. Yes, because you do still sort of have that, like, gravelly growl that he has it's just not so over the top like with Lumiere but that's the only thing that he lost was the over the topness you can still hear it yeah like I will give it this though the first time through I watched it the whole time I was going I know this voice I know this voice I know this voice and it it sounded familiar and then when I looked it up I went oh but now I can't unhear it um, but I mean, I, I like that they brought him back for another movie. I mean, obviously they love him. They think highly of him. So right. I'm glad to see him in another, you know, voicing another Disney character. Um, before we get too far ahead with the wedding crash, though, there is something that I bump on with the wedding. Um, you know, Jeannie convinces Aladdin, obviously, to go back to the palace. And Aladdin just had this moment of where do I fit in here? Do I really belong? But now he's up there waiting at the altar and then the genie comes in and he's like, oh, the cummerbunds don't match and whatever. And like as great as it is to have Robin Williams back, I feel like we're just waiting for the sake of comedy. And it's like if he's getting nervous, you kind of need to move things along here. So I feel like we we had a little bit of a sacrifice for the genie's performance here, but I'm willing to overlook that. What I really bump on, though, is that. The Sultan isn't walking Jasmine down the aisle. He's getting carried in on a barge, which, if you ask me, is what they should be doing for Jasmine. But, like, not even Raja walks her down. Like, how cute would that be if he was, like, carrying her veil? Yeah, instead, you just get the caravan, the sedan, right, that the Sultan is on. Um, I, I mean, I guess it doesn't ruin it for me. Perhaps missed opportunity, yes, but I, I can totally see the Sultan being carried in on a sedan. Where it does really redeem itself, though, is when the Sultan says to Jasmine, I never thought this day would come. It is such a great callback and something that I think can be overlooked because it does just sound like hyperbole. How many suitors did she go through? He was so worried that she was never going to choose anyone, and she found her person in Aladdin. So I love that they wrote to that. That is attention to detail that I was not expecting here. And some of that is negated when they have real great attention to detail there and nobody connects the symbol on the dagger. Seriously. I mean, Aladdin is holding the dagger. He's showing the dagger off. The King of Thieves has already been there. So, you know, for us, it stood out to us because we've seen Aladdin with the dagger. We've seen the King of Thieves. They've not yet been in the same room together. Now that they have been, after a massive distraction that not only ruined the wedding, but destroyed a huge portion of the palace when they sent the elephants running through. Elephant. That's right. Just the Singular, one. Singular. Just the one. 
He's very destructive. He's very fast. Nobody put it together. Well, to me, this is what's more egregious, though, other than the singular elephant. There's 40 thieves, right? Right. It says so in the title. Our, you know, core team here is already grossly outnumbered. So instead of leaning into the fact that this is already just a numbers game, they're doing all of these slightly ridiculous things to take out the bigger powers and keep them occupied so that Aladdin has to be the one to fight. Like the guards are useless, which doesn't track because Razul just wants to kill people. This would have been the perfect opportunity for him to catch some bad guys. The genie, I hate to say it, is useless because they they write him out of this scene because he's got to hold the roof up, which is collapsing. You could have done that where he's using his magical power, which we did learn in Return of Jafar. His powers are lessened, but he could have been trying to like run through and repair minor damages instead of just take him out completely by holding up the roof and making that his role in, in the battle here. As I said, Raja is nowhere to be found. So I get that they were writing to take out all of the obvious choices as to how to defeat the 40 thieves, but I just feel like this was too extreme and it could have been done a little bit better. What I do really appreciate, though, is they let Jasmine throw some punches. I can appreciate the slapstick of it all. Um, I can appreciate the fact that they fight off the 40 thieves, even though they're outnumbered. Um, it, It's just, it's for comedy. I'm not going to overthink comedy. Most people do now, and that's why nothing's funny anymore. But that's what I'm saying. They're already outnumbered. You have that going for you, so you didn't have to take it to such extremes to take out major characters. If they were to... What they should have done, though, because they were so outnumbered, I'm fine if they could have fought them off, but they, in theory, should have gotten away with the staff. They should have gotten away with the staff. We should have learned because they had the staff that the Oracle was real, and then Aladdin should have to steal it back. But... That's not what happens here. Instead, Aladdin is able to protect the staff and keep it from his father, which then reveals the Oracle. What do you think about the Oracle? I don't mind it. Um, I don't know that there was necessarily another way that you could have brought about the search... And there's no other way that you could have tied his father back to the wedding had it not been for that staff being there. His father would have had no reason to inadvertently be at his son's wedding had he not been going for the staff. The only thing that's that kind of made me tilt my head a little bit is that for the first two films, the most powerful thing in the world was a genie. And yeah. now, now it's the all-knowing oracle. That's it. You hit it. This is what I bump on a little bit. I mean, it may sound ridiculous in films about genies that I don't buy into the Oracle, but I think it's different because and and maybe because there's the lore of the lamp where, you know, you rub the lamp, the genie comes out, you get three wishes. That's 
kind of just something that's embedded in storytelling. Um, that's not to say that oracles aren't, but this just feels too supernatural to me. And again, that might seem odd in a film about genies, but what I really don't like, and I, I think this is the bigger issue. I I'd be fine with the Oracle, but the ask me a question now go this way. Like she, she's way too on the nose and I feel like it's very weak writing because she's helping the characters along too much. I mean, but that's what the Oracle is. It's an all knowing being and you're not going to do a genie for a third time. I'll give you that one. Um, let's talk about Aladdin finding his father at Mount Sesame, which I think most people just, they hear open sesame and they think they're saying open sesame. I think that's a very common misconception for people. Is it? I thought, I mean, I think so. I don't think a lot of people understand that open sesame is in reference to Mount Sesame. I don't think a lot of people know that. No, but I never I never broke it down to open says a me. That was when I was a kid. That was what I thought it was. Wasn't until later in life that I realized, oh, wait, no, he's not saying open says a me. No. Because it, how but you know what it is, because it gets parodied in television and film so often where somebody will look at a, at a safe and go open says a me and it opens. I never, no, I never picked up on that, that it was open sesame. I always, I always knew it was open sesame, but I didn't know that it had to do with a specific location. I just remember, and I can't remember what show it was, and this is going to bother me all day now, but to your point, how many times it gets parodied where somebody forgets that it's sesame and it's open Saskatchewan and like, like kid shows did this all the time with like silly words that start with an S you want to talk about bad writing. Yeah, and they do it once here with Razul. Yeah, I know. It's it's cringe. Everybody knows the phrase open sesame. It's it's a little cringe. What's really cringe to me is the reveal of Aladdin saying, Hey, I'm your son. We don't build to this moment at all whatsoever. They get they rush into it. I'll give you that. And then Kasim just buys it. I mean, he has the dagger. I mean, that's enough proof. It is, but I feel like Kasim buys into it and believes him before he even sees the dagger. I mean, here's the thing. Kasim knows he has a son. This isn't a case of he fathered a child he had no idea about. But... You just crashed his wedding. So even if you don't know that this is your son, there's no beat of realization of like, oh, this guy. Because the king of thieves doesn't care. I know he doesn't care, but like, I just needed like a breath in here somewhere. Like everything just tumbles out in the open. There, There's no building. There's no reveal. It just... I just feel like this could have been handled a bit more carefully so that it felt like a moment. I'm willing to overlook that because it did bother me, but I'm willing to overlook it because of how well Kasim is written moving forward because he starts scheming immediately. Immediately when he says, let's let the boy participate in the challenge. 
Because he knows Aladdin can win. Aladdin doesn't know exactly what this challenge is going to be, but Kasim knows right away. And the rest of them are all about it because they like watching people fight and get killed. Right. So he knows immediately, I can get my son into the King of Thieves. It's only going to help him in terms of being the... Well, he's getting them into the 40 Thieves. It's it's only going to help him as the King of Thieves because now he's going to have a blood ally in here. And then from that point moving forward, we're going to go to the castle. I'm going to get to the orc. His wheels are spinning. Yeah, Aladdin's his meal ticket. Correct. In both his own gang and to get ahead. And and it's great because you you never really know whether or not you should or shouldn't trust Kasim. You don't know when he's being authentic, when he's being fake. Right. I think, I think that's a very strong, that's a strong suit of the writing here. Yeah. And, and it starts in this moment. Yeah. I like how they develop this. And what I also really like is back at the palace, we also get a chance for the genie and Jasmine's relationship to develop a little bit. Mrs. Doubtfire. It's, I mean, were you really not going to do it? That movie was huge at this point. Um, so I, I love that they wrote it into this film. But I also, I think it is important because the genie in Aladdin, you know, he helps Aladdin win her heart. In Return of Jafar, he helps Aladdin win her back. I mean, most of the, the relationship between these two at this point has been the, the genie like duping Jasmine into going back to their relationship. So it's nice to see that they actually get to bond here and he's trying to cheer her up at this point. I love how he has her transforming in and out of other Disney princesses. You get Snow White, you get Cinderella. It's great. All of it, very well done, very funny. And you're right, It there needed to be a bit of a mending of the fence between Jasmine and the genie. I don't think a lot of people really put that together, but you're right. His entire relationship with her is scheming with Aladdin. Yeah. And keeping things from her. Right. But it's the genie, so you kind of just let it go. Um Okay, so let's talk about how now Aladdin's in the 40 Thieves and he wants to bring Kasim back to live an honest life. Um this is something I have a bit of an issue with. Same. Because I appreciate that Aladdin wants to be selfless. And we're not seeing him steal from the rich to give to the poor the way that we've seen him do in the other two films. So I think this is supposed to be in place of that. However, how many times are you going to trust Kasim? Because he has proven to not be loyal to you, to not be trustworthy... And to not be honest a countless amount of times within the first 15 to 20 minutes of screen time. How many times does Aladdin need to see it? And at what point is Aladdin, because we saw him do it with Iago in Return of Jafar. Now, we're willing to look past it in Return of Jafar because he wants to give Iago the second chance that he got. Or so he says. We're going to buy that. You've already been stabbed in the back once. Yet you continue to do it again. It's like Aladdin, as much as I love him as a character, this is another example of lessons not learned. Because I said it last week, he deceives the princess, figured he would have learned from his lesson, let's deceive her again. Now, he's not so much deceiving the princess, 
but he's still not learning his life lessons. It makes him endearing, but it also makes you want to slap him upside the head. Yeah, I think this is where the writing does get a little contradictory here because I will buy into the notion that this is Aladdin's form of charity in this case. He's not, you know, going so far as to take gold and give it to Kasim, but the olive branch that he's extending here is sort of the same. It is a charitable act to pay forward the second chance that he got. But to your point, he already did that with Iago. So you can't just write this off as, well, he's been saying he wanted a relationship with his father. Now he gets the father. What they should have wrote to a little bit more is Aladdin learning who his father is because he just takes to him. There's no mention of, I mean, there's a, they hit on it a little bit like, oh, my dad's the king of thieves because he he was told that uh, by the oracle that his father had been in or ki- not kidnapped, um, trapped by them. Yeah, which is a very smart play on words. That is good writing because she's not saying by what he he's trapped of his own volition. He's um, trapped in the path of the king of the forty thieves, is what she says. Right, but it's not revealed that he's the king of thieves. So right. Aladdin does di- have to digest that a little bit and we see him wrestle with it, but he doesn't take it personally of, well, yes, my dad's the king of thieves and maybe I can look my, I can turn my head the other way in this case, but he did just crash my wedding, even though he didn't know it was me. Like now I've seen him do a bad thing and that doesn't get explored at all. Instead, what he does say is that, you know, they start digging up the past a little bit and he tells his father that we never wanted gold. We just wanted you present. Who is this we? Because like canon, we've gotten that Aladdin was orphaned from the time he was a tiny baby. So now it sounds like Maybe he had his mother in the picture until he was like five and she raised him as a single parent while his dad was off doing whatever with the 40 thieves. So I, I don't like that they're trying to rewrite history for this moment, especially when if you want to show the struggle of their relationship and and show that. Aladdin is going to have difficulty trusting him. There were a million other ways to do that without having to write to the past and and create this broken family picture that you never really had. And let's talk about writing backwards a little bit further. Let's talk about Iago. Okay. So Iago in return of Jafar, he kind of double crosses them for a minute, but it's really out of self-preservation more than anything else. Cause he's starting to turn a new leaf. But of course the conflict comes from, they just think that he was lying the entire time. Makes sense. Good writing. A little on the nose, we've seen it a hundred times, but it works more times than not. In Return of Jafar, it worked. Now you've got Iago. He's finally gotten their full apology. It's it's finally the full sympathy that he deserved. He's and living a pardon. A pardon. He's living a cushy life in the palace. All is well. And it's just like, oh, I'll go off with the King of Thieves now. 
Because I like this guy. I get this guy. Why are we stepping backwards again? You know, like, it, it just seems like another character that kind of can't help himself. Like, you've got it made. You wanted life back in the palace. You have it. We've already learned to trust you. We have seen that you have acted against your will to keep yourself alive. Well, now it just seems like you would have done this anyway. I do believe that they wrote him backwards. I would agree with that. And normally, I love a trilogy like this, like Pirates of the Caribbean, where Barbosa goes from being the enemy to you have to work with him to get ahead. And then he goes back to acting in his old self-interest. So I would totally buy that from Iago. But what doesn't make sense is that, yes, you wanted to get back in the palace. You have everything now. It's just going to be given to you. You don't need to steal it. So I think that had they written a little bit more to Iago's good at being bad, he likes being bad. He, even though he has everything that he wants, um, it's coming too easily for him. I think that they could have leaned into that a little bit more. I mean, you don't necessarily need it right now, but ultimately at the end when he makes the decision to go off with Kasim. I think that totally makes sense. You just kind of need to connect these dots a little bit more. Agreed. Um, let's move on to the Forbidden Isle, right? Or the, the, We're moving on to the turtle, right? Well, before we get out there, um, you know, we talked about how last week... It was a very big deal that Aladdin lied to Jasmine yet again and then doubled down on it by saying, I lost you once this way. I'm not going to lose you again. This is where things start to get a little muddled because Jasmine encouraged him to go find his father once they learned that he was alive and have a relationship with him so he could be at the wedding. And she tells him, take all the time you need, to which Aladdin's response is, I'll be back in time for our wedding, which is not defined yet about how long these palace repairs are going to take and when you are getting married. Um, so that's bad writing. Not my original point. The point that I am trying to make is that Aladdin has barely reconciled for himself who his father is at this point. So how did he think he was going to hide this from Jasmine? And now he lies again. And perhaps this is like the worst lie that he's ever told, because that's the thing. Aladdin wasn't forthcoming with her about who he was, that he wasn't actually a prince. I mean, it, it's not the nicest thing that you duped her, but like you didn't cover up that you were some horrible person. Now you're covering up that your dad is a horrible person. Did you really think that she wasn't going to find out? And then when she does, like, now's the time to blow up, Jasmine. Now's the time to get mad. We said it didn't really make sense that it happened in Return of Jafar, that she got mad about Iago. I mean, like, it should have because he lied to her again after he swore that he wasn't going to do that anymore. But I had argued that you have that moment to break them up to get them back together just for the sake of having a nice song. Here, she should legit be mad. Nothing. Uh, Daddy just wants to give people second chances. It's what he does. <laughs> it's more or less the line. Yeah, he he is let off the hook way too easily this time. Um, But we get from there to the Vanishing Isle. I think I called it Forbidden Isle. 
before, but between Indiana Jones, Jewel of the Nile, romancing the stuff, all of the, everything's <laughs> got an aisle and it's vanishing, it's forbidden, it's hidden, it's destiny, it's, they're all the same after a while. It's a turtle. And now, Strange World seems a little bit more derivative than I thought it was. Little bit. Maybe it's canon. Perhaps... It's all oh, it's all tied together. Maybe that's what Jaeger was looking for, the hand of Midas. The whole time. Don't touch the hand. I love that, by the way. I love that oh, the hand such actually, a great device. that it has a handle on it. Yep. And that you have, because you would think, oh, I'll just grab it off the statue. Yep. But if you, forgetting that anything I've, it touches is going to just turn it to gold. Including yourself. Yeah. And I love that Aladdin and Kasim are obviously smart enough to get ahead of that. But not every character is. Yeah. Goodbye, Saluk. It's a fitting end for Saluk. Yeah. Um, that he wanted the power, he wanted the profit, he got it, and off he goes, sink to the bottom of the ocean. And so does everything else. Because then the barge that they're on, the ship that they're on, when Kasim gets rid of the hand, as it's going into the sea, it does land on the boat, turns it to gold, everything sinks, down they go. Turtle gone. That I thought was pretty smart to yeah. do, though, because being, you know, I said it earlier, there's 40 of them, 39 now without Saluk. Well, yeah, no, it's still 39 because Aladdin, when they thought Saluk was dead, kind of took his place. So it's still 40. But right. there are still 40 because he's not Aladdin's not really in it anymore. But point is, you still have 39 other bad guys, 38, because Kasim, you're not going to take out. You have to account for the rest of them. So this was like a quick and easy way to get it done, and it all made sense. And they, you get the steamboat genie. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they weren't letting this film end without one more incredible Easter egg. And I think that the end of the movie is actually pretty perfect because you finally get the wedding. All right, so now they've finally gotten married. Kasim is there, but like hiding in the background, but in plain sight where everybody can see him. Um and he and Iago go off together. For what it is, even though I think they wrote Iago backwards, I love the fact that he goes off with Kasim. Like, if this is what we're going to do, if that's how you're going to write him, you can't leave him in the palace. I love exactly. that he goes off and they're going to scheme and they're going to rob, loot, and steal their way to their next adventure to the point where I kind of would have been cool with a spinoff seeing more of the two of them together. See, this is where it does kind of go against Return of Jafar, though, because Aladdin and Jasmine were supposed to be off having those adventures. So if that's what Iago wants, now his motivation is clear. Maybe that he doesn't want to be the bad guy, but it's just because palace life is not what he thought it was cracked up to be because he's missing out on... Maybe not, I, I had said it before, maybe it's not, though, so much the stealing and the looting, but the adventure of it all and that lifestyle. And as soon as he flies onto Kasim's shoulder, it just makes so much sense. Can you see him sitting on Aladdin's shoulder like that? No, no. not at all. No. So I, I love the choice there. I thought that that was so brilliant. And I love that it alludes to Kasim and Iago will still be in and out of their lives. They're not going away for good. The door is always open at the palace for them to come back. Not permanently, but I, I like that they're going to, they're both going to move forward with the lives that they want and they're still going to keep each other in them. 
Let's move on to music. I got three songs, three songs out of this film that to me could have and should have been on that top 100 songs list. I think that for the most part, I'd say the songs here are just as good as the ones in Return of Jafar. Mm, I'm going to disagree with that. Uh, Interesting. They're good. They're catchy, but I don't think they're quite on par. Before we get into the songs, though, you jumped ahead of the last shot. Um, we didn't talk about this last week with Return of Jafar. How much smooching there is. Aladdin and Jasmine kiss so many times, like more so than we've seen with any other characters. But this is also part of what I was talking about with building this relationship out, not just seeing the wedding at the end of a film and seeing the happy ending. Now we're seeing, you know, after the happily ever after with them. Do you see Aladdin's eyebrows going up and down? It is so suggestive. I mean, we do know that the ground is going to shake on the honeymoon. <laughs> We've already been told this. Well, that's my point. We've been told this, but now they're, they're leaning into it even more. I was not expecting that. Yeah, why not? Why not? Well, I guess that is what happens when when they lean into Disney weddings. Apparently, there were going to be multiple parties there in Agrabah. Oh! We didn't practice that. <laughs> in retrospect, that was pretty bad. Um, there's a party here in Agrabah is the first song in the film. It opens the film. This song is so much fun. It is so well done, but... Only Robin Williams can do this. Absolutely. I mean, is it as good as Friend Like Me? No, but it's a total bop. This is what I was talking about when I said they wasted no time when they knew they got him back. Like, of course, you're going to give him the first song. Um, but what I also really like is how this song transitions through multiple characters. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a really clever way to reset everybody. And how you're getting different perspectives. What that phrase means yes yes it's very well done out of thin air this song i think should be on the list because to me this feels the most like mencken and ashman maybe even more so than anything that we saw in return of jafar Really? I love this song. I think this song's excellent. I thought it was just okay and i thought it could have gotten a lot deeper. Interesting. Very interesting. How about Welcome to the 40 Thieves? Ah, bop. This song. Total bop. It makes the list? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. No, and this is another thing that I remembered um, once the film started coming back to me. I was like, oh, I really liked this song. And I think this was used in a lot of the promotion as well. Father and Son. This was a song I didn't think we needed. This this was just a forced shoehorn song that I didn't think was necessary i didn't think a lot of things killed the pace in this movie this did yeah i would agree with that are you in or out it's a villain song it's a low-key great villain song because it reminds me of radigan oh it, it feels like radigan to me yeah yeah it's catchy but um to me not as good as second rate uh, final thoughts on Aladdin and the King of Thieves. If you don't mind, I'll go first. You go right ahead. Because I have sort of a hot take on this. Um, 
we said last week, Return of Jafar to me is not only one of the best straight to video sequels. In my opinion, it's one of the best sequels of all time because I I just think it's so well done as far as passing the baton, picking up where you left off. Um and the music is great. Um I don't feel the same way about this. It's certainly not as good as Return of Jafar. And and of course it's not going to be because the bar is just set so high for me. Um this certainly isn't the worst sequel that we've seen. Um, I still think it's a pretty decent movie, but I think that there was a way to make both sequels even stronger. What I would have done was switch them, meaning not the order, put King of Thieves out first and then Return of Jafar. But what I would have done was have your setup of Return of Jafar where the Sultan offers Aladdin the position of vizier and instead of Jafar coming back now is when you introduce his father because I feel like that conflict would have been so much better as far as okay I'm entering this palace life now I don't really know who I am I don't know about my past where do I fit in here and what you could have done was taken the genie and held him back so if you didn't have Robin Williams you still could have written it off as he's out traveling the world. And now Al's got to figure this out on his own, who he is. And he does that through a relationship with his father. Because I think one of the other biggest conflicts in this film is that Aladdin and the genie, it's always the buddy story. What happens when you introduce a father figure? Now it can't be a buddy story anymore. So I think that that would have strengthened the Aladdin Kasim relationship even more and just Aladdin's character and the story by having him wrestle with who he is while he's still transitioning into palace life. Now you get the wedding and Jafar crashes the wedding. I would have much rather seen that play out. I mean, that's not to say again that this is bad and I still love return of Jafar, but I think to make, to, to punch up that movie even more, if that was the cap on this trilogy, I think it would have made it infinitely better. I see that. I think that's a valid point. And you're right. I think that that would have served the trilogy very well. I think it also would have addressed what you said, too, as far as Aladdin not learning the lessons by reversing them. But with that said, knowing the trilogy as we know the trilogy... I'm going to take a different stance on this. I actually very much enjoyed this film. I I think it's almost as good as Return of Jafar. Oh wow, okay. Um with the with the exception of a little bit of backwards writing, I think the story is great. I think that the characters are great. Um I think the pacing is by and large very good. I think the music, by and large, is outstanding. And I actually do think that um, I, I would put this almost on par. I think in terms of trilogies that are centered around the animated Disney classics, considering the fact that two out of three of these Aladdin films were straight to VHS, it's one of the best, it's one of the most complete trilogies that we have, Um I'm sure eventually we'll watch Bambi 2. I don't really know what the point of that is, but I'm sure we're <laughs> going to watch it eventually. Um, 
We already know that Bell's Magical World stinks on toast. So even if the Christmas film is great, it's not a complete trilogy. Little Mermaid 2 is pretty good, but we don't, I mean, we've got an Ariel prequel, but that's to me, it's not really a trilogy, you know? So I think in all, this is, this is a very complete trilogy. Yes. Um, and, and I think that they didn't do anything else after this. I would have been okay with a spinoff with Kasim and Iago, but they didn't. And I'm okay with it. I, I think that all in all, you put out three very good movies. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say about Aladdin and the King of Thieves. Um, where do you rank it in regards to straight-to-VHS sequels? Certainly, we're not going to put it above the return of Jafar. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. No news for now. That's because we are heading to Disney Springs in a couple of days for what is set to become a very action-packed, news-filled, tequila-filled dockside chat. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. So we're holding the news for then. But thank you so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I just gave you all of that social media. X, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok threads at Monoreal Radio. Um, be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice and for links to everything related to the show. It is going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.